I want to start uh, by uh, asking the Lord's blessing on our Sunday morning and uh, praying for the people that can't be here physically but are all around the country and around the world that listen. I, I told several of them that we'd pray for them on Sundays here. Um, so if you're listening, we are thinking about you and we wish you could actually be here with us. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the dear brothers and sisters around the world that we can get to know through emails and uh, contacting over the internet. And we thank you that there are so many people hungry for the word. Uh, be with them, help them find fellowship wherever they may be. Thank you, Lord, that you give us brothers and sisters in Christ who love us and pray for us. And Lord, we pray that this morning we would uh, do things in a way that would be honoring to you, that your word would be clear and powerful that the gospel would go out, and that you would draw us closer to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, 2 Corinthians 2, in verse 8, um, we are talking about a situation, or Paul's writing about a situation in the church in Corinth where he had decided not to travel there and had been misunderstood because of that. But there was a discipline issue, and he had determined that it was right and best if the church itself took action and did church discipline rather than Paul. And it's why he didn't go. And so they did take action. And evidently, the person who was offending, and we don't know exactly what his offense was, but evidently he repented. And so therefore, now Paul is telling the church to comfort him and to bring him back into fellowship. It's important to be uh, loving and open to the repentant and not to hold grudges against people over what was in the past. So there's room for repentance in the church and God changes people and when He does, they're to be received with open arms and love and comfort is what it said in verse 7. So verse 8 says, Wherefore I urge you to reaffirm your love for Him. Reaffirm your love for Him. All church discipline, as taught in the New Testament, has a goal of salvation, forgiveness, and restoration. Even in Matthew 18, one of the more prominent passages about church discipline, uh, when it says that if someone was confronted by an individual, and then later by two or three witnesses, and then later by the entire church, and they refuse to repent, then it says to regard them as a tax gatherer or a Gentile. Now, what that would mean to the Jewish audience is that they're outside of the family of God, or they're, they're not one of us. But that doesn't mean that you still don't pray for repentance. Um, if it's determined that someone really wasn't truly a Christian, you still pray that they would respond to the gospel and become one. All right, but they're not received into fellowship as a Christian when obviously they refuse to follow the norms of the Bible as far as Christian behavior. So that's what Matthew 18 is about. So here it says, reaffirm your love. Andy? <laughs> See, I asked his name earlier so I wouldn't, so I could impress everybody that I remembered. Uh, uh, Jude. Uh, one. There's only one chapter in Jude, but verses 22 and 23, if you could read that. <laughs> this is Andy and Jessica. 
And they live on Rhode Island, right? Just but up in Golden Valley. <laughs> That's like third John. I need Jude. Uh, 22 and 23. 22 and 23. And have mercy on some who are doubting. Save others, snatching them out of the fire. And on some have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. Okay, so have mercy on some of snatching them out of the fire. Okay, so if there are people that are Christians who have gone astray, and Jude is talking about both uh, moral failings and doctrinal ones. There are two issues addressed in Jude. Doctrinal um, heresy or moral failings, but in either regard, we're trying to snatch people out of the fire. In other words, they are in a house that's burning down figuratively, and you want to get them out of there. So the house of error and falsehood and uh, immorality is something that people need to be rescued out of. Now, it's not always a thankful job to try to rescue somebody from a fire, because especially when they don't believe they're really in a fire, and they can be rather uh, angry. And trying to correct error is not an easy thing to do. We had, uh, Brian Flynn and I had an experience like that um, on uh, whatever night it was. We went to talk to some people uh, from the emergent church. And it was just very, very uh, troubling. It's very, uh, it's very difficult to try to tell somebody that they're in error when they think that you're the one that's the problem. And nevertheless, it's a loving thing to do. It's it's loving to correct error. Where's the? There's a passage in James. Okay, hold on. No, wait. You don't need the mic. Go ahead, Dan. (laughs) Brother, if any of you do err from the truth and one convert him, let him know that he which converted the sinner from the error of his way shall save a soul from death and shall hide a multitude of sins. All right, that's the one we were looking for. So if you, if someone errs and you are able to convince them of the truth, you save, uh, you cover a multitude of sins. Now, where else does it say cover a multitude of sins? It says love covers a multitude of sins. So it's a loving thing to help someone who's caught into error. It try to help them out. Yes. Uh, how do you approach someone that has erred from the truth and yet um, very um, despairing and then goes ahead and commits suicide? Well, the only thing we can do is lovingly uh, affirm what the truth is and try to help people to see it. So uh, there's really not much more a person can do. (laughs) Yes, Keith? I I think that it's what people perceive as tolerance oftentimes is just, I want to leave my life alone, I don't want to be hassled, and I don't want to you know, raise my head and say something because all it's going to bring is, is conflict and I'm not going to be liked very well. Yeah. And the, exactly. the, the context is you know, it's loving to bring correction. And, and, and bringing correction meaning Jesus died for your sins, come under, repent, and come under the covering of Jesus because if you come back under the covering of Jesus... Your sins will be covered and you'll be brought back into fellowship. Yeah, it's amazing how good people are twisting things around at that meeting that we were at this 
it's just it's mind-boggling. One of the guys said, "Don't listen to them. Don't listen to these guys. They don't even they're fundamentalists. They don't even ordain women." Okay. Silly us. Well, what do you what do you say when see what happens? It's like playing chess and checkers on the same board. There's a whole different set of rules, and there's no there's no, nothing in common because there's a whole system of religious values based on humanistic ideas that everybody should be able to do whatever they want and be happy about it. And then there's the view that the scriptures actually speak to us and they're binding on us, and that if we can understand the scriptures, whatever it does say is binding. That's two different religious views. And so it's hard to come to any kind of conclusion. Yes, so uh, Mike. I, I think there's also some verses in the Bible uh, that say something about once once you've given the truth and if it's repeatedly, I don't know, uh, opposed that you're to uh, knock the dust off your feet and move on. Yeah, there's certainly Proverbs has a lot of wisdom like that. It says if you if you try to uh, reprove a scorner, you'll just get trouble, or try to reprove a fool. So some of a fool is wed to his folly, and that's the way they want it. And you keep trying to correct them, they'll just hate you. Proverbs talks about this. So eventually, you have to say, okay, I put the truth out there. There's no more I can do. But sometimes it's very difficult if it's a if it's a family member. Or let's say, from what I've been hearing from people, what really is hard for them is it may be an entire church where they've been part of for 30, 40 years, and they try to bring correction, and then they're just mocked or hated or told to leave, and it's very painful. Because it's, it's generally what it should be is the truth is solid, or the church itself is solid in the truth, and you have a straying member. And you have to, so the whole church has to correct the member. But when you have the member that's solid and the whole church is straying, then you really got a difficulty. And that's exactly what we were seeing the other day. In Israel, if you think of Jeremiah, was the one one that stayed to the truth, and the whole country strayed. And he was the one guy trying to bring the whole country back to where God was, which was what he the message he was yeah. giving. And they wouldn't listen to him. And then Jeremiah got really sick of his job, you know. I want to quit. Yeah, he kept going to the Lord and said, "How I have to quit doing this? I can't take it. It's too hard." And then the Lord says to Jeremiah, "Well, if you can't run with the horsemen, how are you going to run with the horses?" And which was a figurative way of saying it's going to get worse. <laughs> so Jeremiah had a very tough job. Okay, let's go to verse nine. For to this end also I wrote that I might put you to the test, whether you are obedient in all things. Now, the test that Paul put them to was not coming and leaving it up to them to do church discipline on the straying brother, whoever it may be. Okay, so that was the test. The word test in the Greek is a doki, see, dokimazo. Um, and it has to do with to approve after testing. Uh, approve after testing. The same word is used uh, Jim, if you could look this one up, 2 Corinthians 13, 5 through 7. We have the same word, dokimazo. It's also used several times in James, where it talks about testing of our faith, where God puts us to the test 
to see if we have genuine faith. Not that God doesn't know, but we need to see if we have a faith that will persevere under testing. Okay, so 2 Corinthians 13, 5-7. Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail the test? But I trust that you will realize that we ourselves do not fail the test. Now we pray to God that you do no wrong, not that we ourselves may appear approved, but that you may do what is right, even though we may appear unapproved. Okay, so Paul's talking about, about testing yourself to see if you're in the faith. Now generally, when you see the word faith with a definite article in the Greek, the faith, it has to do with the content of the faith. The, word, the concept of faith is both subjective and objective, and both aspects of it are addressed in the Bible. Objective faith is what we believe, okay? The content of our beliefs. The faith, once for all, delivered to the saints, as it says in Jude. The subjective aspect is that we are trusting the faith. We are believing the faith. Okay, so that's the subjective that's within us. Our faith is in the objective content. So when it says to test yourself to see if you are in the faith, you have to start with the objective, the faith. Because people can have faith in a bad object. Right? You can have faith. We have an article. If we can just pray that we can get our mailing permit number so we can mail this article out. We have an article that's going to deal with this. You can have sincere faith in a bad object. Okay? The Star and Trib had an article Saturday about these Mormon missionaries and how dedicated they are. And, you know, there's always two of them. They always have a white shirt and a tie. And they're so dedicated. Well, it's, it's admirable how dedicated they are. They have the subjective faith, but the objective is false. They have faith in a false Christ. They they have faith faith in in a Christ who doesn't meet the definitions of Jesus Christ in the Bible. Okay, so you can have a defective object of your faith, and when you do, it's a bad thing for you. It's very bad to have a, uh, an object of faith that's not legitimate because you may be sincere, you may be dedicated, you may uh, be willing to suffer financial loss. Unless of course you're that guy that was in the paper today. Anybody see that? A local pastor's got a little better deal than I have. He's got two condos in Florida, one in Brainerd, an airplane, and it was on the front page of the paper. Starting to trim. Oh, yeah, where, where's my deal? I, 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 have a, I have a truck. I got, I, got a, I got a truck with a topper on it. I'm happy, yes. I mean... <laughs> the, the article that's coming out addresses that if I'm a pastor and I have a personal revelation that I'm supposed to be wealthy and that's what God says, then I have, and I put my faith in this revelation, Yes. I end up like the guy in the cover and I think that I'm obeying God with all my heart and all sincerity, but because the object of my faith, my own revelation or this personal word from God is misplaced and misguided. No matter how much sincerity I have, it's still wrong. Exactly. That, the, the article is going to be about these personal words from God. 
and I'm claiming they're never binding and they're not inerrant, so we can't, uh, we're never bound to an errant word. Right? So I think this article is going to raise some eyebrows and probably get me some nasty feedback, but I think it's important. So, a, a defective object of our faith is wrong. So it says, test yourself to see if you're in the faith. It's using this idea of the dokimazo, the, uh, it, it comes in its etymology from the idea of an assayer or somebody with like a, a what do they call a mortar and pestle? You know, and you grind, you put put something in there and you grind it all up, and then you sort around and say, okay, is this real gold or is this just fool's gold, or whatever is you're testing. So in James it says God puts us in there and grinds us up, and the, and then we find out if our faith is genuine. Genuine. It's like Abraham when he's tested by bringing Isaac up to, to offer him. And Abraham passed the test. He had genuine faith in God. So, uh, test yourself to see if you're in the faith. So, you've got to start with the objective content. What is binding? What is it actually revealed in Scripture that's inerrant, authoritative, and that's binding on all Christians? And then having determined that objectively, the subjective aspect is, am I in it? All right? And if I am in the faith, according to the terms of the gospel, then Christ is in me. It doesn't say to look inside of yourself to see if you can find the Christ. It says to test yourself to see if you're in the faith. If you fail the test, Christ isn't in you. Does that make sense? <clears throat> Amen. So Christ indwells us, but we don't know it by some touchy-feely process of introspection. But by seeing if we're in the faith. Okay, now in this case, the test was whether the church was serious enough about the apostolic authority that Paul had in the word that he taught them, which was the very gospel and the very word of God, whether they would be willing to do the church discipline that was required. Now, there's a lot of conjecture about what it was. There was a case, for example, in 1 Corinthians 5 where there was a person involved with some very serious immorality and was proud about it. All right? It wasn't just uh, bad enough when somebody falls into sin, but it's worse when they fall into it and they love it. And they say, I have a right to be this way. And you can't tell me any different. That was what was going on in 1 Corinthians 5. So Paul said that that person should be... Uh, removed from the church, turned over to Satan. Um, but even in that, he was hoping for redemption, that, that his spirit might be saved. Is that what it says? Yeah, that he might be restored. So some thought, well, maybe this was the same case and they had taken action and the guy did come back. It's possible, but we don't know that because it doesn't say in Second Corinthians. But if they discipline a wrongdoer and forgive him after repentance, the Christian character has been tested and found to be genuine and passing the test. So that's what is going on. Uh, a willingness to do church discipline. Diane, if you could look up Deuteronomy 8, 2 and 16, and Mary, 2 Thessalonians 3 and verse 14. Deuteronomy 8, 2 and 16, 2 Thessalonians 3 and verse 14. I guess I don't need to be taken up a chair. Um, 8.2 And you shall remember that the Lord your God led you all the way these 40 years in the wilderness to humble you and to test you, 
to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. Okay, let's pause there for that one. The Lord led you in the wilderness to test you to see what's in your heart, whether you'll keep his commandments or not. Now, in those passages like that, like the one in Genesis 22 about Abraham and Isaac, where God says, now I know. We don't take that literally in the sense that God didn't know and God had to find out. That's what the open theists do. They say, well, God doesn't know until he sees our actions in history. God does not have foreknowledge. But in these passages, the test is for our benefit. Right? God knows what's in our hearts, but sometimes we are self-deluded in thinking that we're okay when we're not. And so we go through the wilderness test, and if we're failing, there's still room for repentance. It's good to be put to the test, because if it's not real... Okay, Deuteronomy 8 and verse 16. Who fed you in the wilderness with manna, which your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and that he might test you, to do you good in the end. So Okay, so then there's further revelation about the purpose of testing. God tests us to... Do us good in the end. Alright? So it's a good thing for Christians to go through trials and tests. Because it's how we grow in the faith. It's how we find out we have genuine faith. If it's not the real thing and it gets really bad, we'll say, why be a Christian? Why put up with all this? I had it better off in the world. That's what they did in the wilderness. They said, we had it better off in, in Egypt. Why did you take us out here? We had being, being slaves to Pharaoh was a lot better than eating manna in the wilderness. But then they grumbled and they were tested and, and God dealt with them as sons. Thank you. Okay, Second Thessalonians 3.14, uh, Mary. He called you to this through our gospel that you might be you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay. Called you through the gospel that you might share in the glory of Jesus Christ. Let's go to two Corinthians two and verse ten. It says here, but <clears throat> whom you forgive anything, I forgive also, for indeed what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, I did it for your sakes in the presence of Christ. A little cumbersome here, but what it's saying is, since the church took action, disciplined the wayward Christian, he, whoever he or she was, repented. Therefore, Paul himself is forgiving. He told them to forgive for the good of the man. Now, Paul forgives for the sake of the church. Where it says, I did it for your sakes in the presence of Christ. The word presence in the Greek is face. The face of Christ. But that's often uh, um, uh, a Semitic expression that has to do with presence. So I think that the New American Standard did a good job of uh, translating this. I saw an interesting... I it's interesting about the NIV... So many, did I, I think I mentioned this, so many of these commentaries are based on the NIV because that's probably the number one selling Bible. Is that, is that true? 
I, th I think it's the number one selling Bible in English is the NIV. So they base their commentary on it. But the funny thing is, they have to keep correcting it. <laughs> I, I, it's continually. I wanted to get, show you an example of that if I can find it. Yeah, here it is. No, this just gives you an example of how they base the commentary on the NIV and then they correct it, which is fine. So you read the commentary and you get the right answer. Uh, last week, we actually found where the NIV had it right. So there you go. 2, uh, two Corinthians 2.10. Uh, this is a commentary by, uh, who is this? Martin, I think? Or, no, Garland. It says this, The NIV translation implies a condition, if you forgive. But the if does not appear in the Greek text. I wrote it right here. Wrong again. <laughs> Paul says, Whom you forgive anything with the dative of person and accusative of the thing, I also. So, a good critical commentary will help you understand how the Greek is translated into English. So there's no if there in the original. Uh, the implication is they did forgive and Paul forgives as well. And so there's, a, there's reconciliation. And reconciliation is an important thing. Uh, it's not always possible, but I think if it is possible, we should always try to have reconciliation with Christian brothers and sisters, if possible. Now, I know very well that it's often impossible. And, and I was just at a meeting where we were trying to do that, and it's, it was impossible. It was impossible. The, poor, the, the guy had such a good attitude toward the leaders of his church, and they were basically saying, if you want to be an evangelical, fine, but we don't claim to be evangelical. We're liberal. So, you know, the only if you if you have to turn to theological liberalism to be reconciled, then it's not possible, because unless you actually believe liberalism is the truth, right? So, but on the other hand, there's a lot of uh, lack of reconciliation that happens that's need, needless because. Uh, churches can split over the unbelievably silly things. The color of the carpet. By the way, you better like it. <laughs> we got new carpet. You're going to see it up there. And if you like it, great. If you don't, it ain't coming back up. <laughs> but anyhow, yeah, it is really nice, actually. I think you will like it. But nevertheless, I think we should realize that the gospel is more important than anything else. Amen. And if we can unify around the gospel, then we can tolerate things that aren't of any eternal consequence. All right? Amen. When when Jesus comes again, the carpet's not going to matter. Amen. All right. Um and so, if there is reconciliation and forgiveness, Paul wants to be a part of that, and he wants to make sure that the well-being of the church is the primary thing for him. And here is the reason for that, 2 Corinthians 2 and verse 11. In order that no advantage be taken of us by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes... Now, the scheme here, the scheme of Satan, is to divide the church 
because of unwillingness to find reconciliation and forgiveness when that reconciliation and forgiveness really ought to exist. Because if the man repented and the church discipline was effective and, and there was reconciliation to God, then at that point it would be sinful for the church to not allow the guy into fellowship after he repented. Isn't this a word against the isolationists that tend to say, you know, I can't be, you know, if anybody doesn't believe exactly like me, I can't have fellowship for them? Because you'd think that uh, the scheme of Satan would be to push them too far and to disassociate fellowship on anything. I know. That's, that's a good point. And I have some friends that are somewhat like that uh, around the country. I mean, and I do my best to try to be a mitigating influence on that. Because we're strong in our beliefs and we're willing to debate any doctrine. And we're very uh, outspoken against theological liberalism and compromise. That's, that's, so then there's the assumption, therefore, that anybody that has any difference from me, I have to uh, shun. Yeah, I have to isolate and have nothing to do with them. And some of my friends just can't understand that. For example, someone just asked me, how can John MacArthur be at the same conference with R.C. Sproul? And the reason for the question was, and I think it's a legitimate question, the reason for the question is because R.C. Sproul believes in Christian psychology, R.C. Sproul believes in infant baptism, R.C. Sproul is a preterist. So MacArthur, who doesn't believe in infant baptism, who doesn't promote psychology, and who does believe in the literal millennium, is at the same conference with Sproul. Now, isn't that, doesn't that make MacArthur a compromiser? In my opinion, I said, well, the conference is for the, uh, is for the confessing evangelicals. And what they're confessing is the gospel. All right? And if the conference existed to promote infant baptism, I don't, I don't think they'd get MacArthur to go to it. <clears throat> but being how the conference is there to stand up for the legitimacy of the gospel itself and for the necessity of having gospel preaching in evangelical churches and that we should be confessing evangelicals. In other words, not just have a statement of faith that says we believe in the blood atonement, that says we believe in the resurrection, that says we believe in heaven and hell, but that we'd actually, from our pulpits, preach the truths we claim to believe. That's what confessing is. And so I defended MacArthur's right to be at the conference. Now, that doesn't mean he agrees with these other guys on their points, and he says he doesn't. But he's preaching for himself. Uh, Bill? Uh, would uh, MacArthur uh, be in good hands if he uh, showed up at a conference with Mormons? Um, yeah, if, it, if, he, if, he, if the point of it was to debate them, that's fine. If it was to give implicit agreement, then it wouldn't. But the Mormons aren't confessing the same gospel and they have a different Christ. All right, so that's, that's different. I, I, I think that we can be at any event depending on what the reason is and what's what's implicit in the event. Okay, if there's a forum on religions and somebody goes there as a Christian to proclaim the gospel, then that, that they can that's like Paul at Mars Hill. Okay? So 
so how okay from the unbelievers perspective he's looking at uh, uh, two different belief structures there and and one argument at least from the Baptist camp is that uh, separation must be maintained because the unbeliever would look upon the two in agreement by virtue of being in the same geographical location and discussing the same thing. Uh, I, I think that we're a lot more capable of making those distinctions than, than what they're saying. Um, if you have, some, for instance, at the university, I don't know if they have it at the U, Mark would know, but there's places where they have like soapbox forums where anybody can get up and tell their religion. Free speech area. Yep. So come and you can come and right. do whatever you want to do. Yeah. I guess. So, so you may have socialists, atheists, uh, everybody under the sun, and a Christian can go there, very much like Mars Hill. So I don't think anybody standing there would think that the Christian agreed with everybody else that got on the soapbox, right? That's that would be my contention, and I think a person's doctrine ought to be judged by what they say, not what venue they say it in. And the reason I feel strongly about this is that otherwise, this I don't think the Bible teaches isolationism the way the separatist fundamentalists teach it. Now, I would agree with... Uh, now, I was actually uh, saved in a church that was an isolationist separatist group. At least they were when I first was there. And they basically didn't have anything to do with anybody else in town in any venue whatsoever. They couldn't go into movie theater... They couldn't have anything. They, they, they were totally isolated. And, but the thing was, they'd been in the same town since the 30s. They had a revival in the 30s that started that church. And this was 1971, and they hadn't baptized anybody but children of kids that grew up in that church. Because they wouldn't go into the highways and byways with the gospel. And nobody would go, I wouldn't go to that church. Well, when I was, when, when I was converted, Diane's brother was converted. Diane was converted, I was converted, and we were all baptized in a church because there was a new pastor came in who actually said, we're going to go into the community. He got a job as a bus driver in a public school so people would find out that because he was a Pentecostal didn't mean he was like one of those people. You know, it was so strange. And they began, uh, in, people began to be converted and baptized in that church so the isolation was actually keeping people from the gospel itself. Well, I think that I could go to a Mormon conference or I could go to a prophetic conference for these apostles and prophets, which I actually done, and get up on stage and preach the gospel forthright, straight on. Until they kick you out. Until they kick me out or <laughs> until my time ran up. And that's not any in any way, shape, or form agreeing with what they're saying. And I think that... I mean, you have people going on Larry King Live. The fact that Larry King has him on there doesn't mean Larry King agrees with them. He's interviewing them. Well, he has MacArthur on there. And he has Warren. And 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 he has Rick Warren. They have a reason they like MacArthur on there, though, because they can count on him to make everybody mad, and that's good. (laughs) John MacArthur, do you think that the Hindus are going to hell? Uh, Yes, I do. Oh, it's fundamentalist. It's fundamentalist. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Mike. <laughs> Isn't there a tension, though, between uh, being separate and, uh, you know, cutting yourself off from everything? Uh, I think, you know, because there's conferences where 
you know, different leaders will get together and they're trying to find common ground. And when you do that, the edges get rounded and, and issues get blurred. And, uh, you know, if, if you're moving off of your doctrine towards something else. For the sake of like ecumenicism or something? Yeah, for the sake of getting along or building bridges or, or whatever. Uh, you know, you're, what you're doing is, is stepping back into the world. And I think there's always a tension. You know, we're there to be salt and light for the world. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean uh, becoming the world. And it says if, you know, if, if, if there's uh, the love of the world is in you, you do not have the love of the Father. And um, so I think there's that tension, and we always uh, need to be, you know, uh, alert to where we are, not falling off on either edge of the issue. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And, and it's not a hard and fast decision in some ways. Um, I would tend to think that certain doctrines that have been disputed throughout church history doesn't mean I don't have a very strong belief in the, what I hold, but I'd be a little more willing to say, okay, I can understand. All right, eschatology, I think is very important, absolutely important. But I don't think that R.C. Sproul is teaching a false gospel. I just think he has a bad eschatology. And I might cite him like I did in a sermon, because his book, The Invisible Hand, is the best book on providence I ever read. But I just said, I don't agree with his eschatology, so don't email me about that. I'll tell you right now, I don't agree with it. But if he teaches the correct doctrine of providence, you can learn from that. See, if you, if you only, sectarianism or parochialism is, is, has its own danger because if you only are willing to read the books of everybody who already agrees with, with your system, and you, then you can't interact with, what if you're wrong? Then you've guaranteed you're going to stay wrong forever. Uh, example of that, some people will be mad that I'm going to say this, but I think example of that is hyper-dispensationalism. That where Peter has a different gospel than Paul has, and repentance has no place in the gospel, and other baptism is not for Christians, or water baptism is not for the church. That's what hyper-dispensationalists teach. But if you look at their practice, they're always isolationists. They will have nothing to do with anybody uh, teaching-wise, other than other hyper-dispensationalists. And they stay in that little camp, and nobody comes in unless they're in the camp, and nobody speaks unless they're in the camp, and nobody's in their seminary unless they're in the camp. And so, therefore, they never are going to have somebody say, how can you teach that baptism isn't for Christians when Jesus said, go and baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Well, they're never going to hear that because they won't let anybody in through the door that doesn't already believe their little system. And I think that's a danger too. So I want to be able to interact with people uh, that, that, that have the capability of challenging my ideas. And, 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 I, and I need to listen seriously when people do that because I can't believe I'm right because I'm me. Being me doesn't make me right about anything. Okay? Yes. Getting back to the, the, the passage here, what's critical when it comes to separating and isolating ourselves or isolating an individual from ourselves is the boundaries are established by the gospel and by scripture. Yes. And what Paul was saying here is that they had to find an action 
or somebody that was to be excluded, not because they felt that way, but because scriptures demanded it. Yes. And when he repented from what scriptures demand and conformed to them, he was to be allowed back in, right. regardless of whatever anybody felt. Right. And to not do that would be give Satan an advantage. And we also have precedent with Paul making the gospel itself the most important thing. All right. So that when the gospel's wrong, Paul has no tolerance, absolutely none. And he says, let him be accursed. If, any, if an angel from heaven comes with a different gospel, let the angel from heaven be accursed. Okay? So no tolerance or any tampering with the gospel. But then in other cases, people preach Christ for, what did he, what did he, yeah, whatever, uh, what did he say in Philippians? Out of selfish ambition. That's the word he used. Well, they, they preach Christ for selfish ambition. But at least I rejoice that Christ is preached. So he's more tolerant of some flaws if there's a true gospel than he is if there's a bad gospel. And so that, so I, I defended MacArthur's uh, practice of, pre, of, of participating in the confessing evangelicals. And I heard him say why. He says, I don't agree with any of these guys' eschatology, but we agree on the gospel. And I think at this stage in church history in America, the gospel is what's under attack. And so if I can get together with people that agree on the gospel, then we agree on that much and we have a starting point for some kind of Christian unity. But that doesn't mean I'm not going to keep teaching my eschatology. And, and, and I can't stand, I'm going to rebuke preterists as long as I get a chance to. It's a bad doctrine is what it is. In order that no advantage be taken of us of Satan. The word advantage there means in the Greek to exploit to cheat or to rob. So that when we uh, refuse to reconcile with believers who have repented and are willing to accept the terms of the gospel and the terms of the new covenant, then that creates an advantage uh, that Satan can use and we're not ignorant of his schemes. The word schemes there uh, means from the Greek thoughts or purposes or reasonings. So Satan has a plan and a plot and, to, and it's an attack against the gospel itself. And when you can divide the church wrongly, that is um, feeding into the scheme of Satan. I was going to quote Garland to that end. Here's what he says. Satan's goal is always to foil God's work of reconciling. Note how the wiles of Satan work in the gospel narratives. Satan induces one disciple, Peter, to try to dissuade Jesus from obeying God's will and going to his death. Mark 8, 31 and 33. When that fails, Satan coaxes another disciple, Judas, to help ensure Jesus' death by handing him over to the enemy. Luke 22, 3, John 13, 27. Satan can be behind both moral laxity, anything goes, and callous inflexibility. Everyone goes who does not toe the line. That's kind of what we're talking about. We've got to maintain the best we can, the balance of being strong, but not excluding everybody from fellowship on, on bad grounds. Okay, back to Garland. Everyone goes and does not toe the line. Satan can use the church's permissiveness and failing to chastise sinners in their midst to bring it to ruin. And he can use the church's rigidity and failing to forgive chastened sinners to bring it to ruin. All too often... Efforts to remove evil may lead to the ultimate triumph of evil. Therefore, we should be wary because Satan can be at work even in attempts to purify the church. 
A situation that requires forgiveness is the time when Satan can work his worst and is the most dangerous. Satan fans the flames of hurt into an inferno of hostility. I have seen in my 30-some years of being in the ministry, I have seen uh, godly families torn apart needlessly that shouldn't have been. I've seen churches torn apart needlessly. Now, I think that there may be reasons. In fact, some of the situations I've people have told me about think part of the reason a lot of churches get torn apart over silly issues is a lack of maturity in the members. And generally, if there's a lack of maturity, it's, you can trace it back to bad leadership. Because if the leadership is feeding the flock and setting a godly example, the church matures, right? And when the church matures, one of the what maturity looks like is you're able to make a distinction between what's important and what isn't. And you're willing to suffer um, rejection of your ideas if it isn't something that's eternal. But when you're immature, if somebody doesn't go along with my idea, then I have to go, go somewhere else. And that's just the problem. And I've seen that happen. So I think that's what he's talking about here. I was going to also quote... Barnett on page 132 up to the same end here. I always find when I teach, there's a, I've got so many commentaries that if I read every one on every verse I preached on, I would uh, not get anything done besides preparing for sermons, which wouldn't be a bad process, by the way, if you could get by with it. But I usually uh, find out the two or three best and I, and I consult at least two or three sources. Uh, the reason for that is I don't trust myself to know everything, All right? So here's what, uh, in, my, in this case, Second Corinthians, i got Paul Barnett and a guy named Garland. He says this, <clears throat> On this understanding, Satan's schemes, um, of which Paul is not unaware, would separate Christ, the Corinthians from him. The continued existence of a minority who support the offender against the majority who now support Paul represents an ongoing opportunity for division with the potential for final separation of the Corinthians from Paul. Paul, The forgiveness and comfort of the man, however, will serve also to reconcile the minority with the majority and thus the whole congregation with Paul. And it will, serve, uh, it will well serve Satan's purposes for the Corinthians to be separated from the authority and influence of the Apostle Paul. And so that's why he's willing to do battle. Because when they get separated from Paul and his authority as Apostle, they're likely to get separated from the Gospel. And they're, they're going to be separated from a source of correction. Because the Corinthian church needed a lot of correction. And so they needed to have Paul to speak to them. So, so they turn away from him, they're like, likely to go totally off the deep end. Alright, some passages. Uh, Lois, um, 2 Corinthians 11, verse 3. And artist, 2 Corinthians 11, verse 14. And Larry, Zechariah 3, 1 through 4. And help me with your name. Trudy? Julie. Julie. I knew that. Okay. Uh, Julie. Uh, Luke 22, 31. And Linda, Ephesians 6, 11 and 12. And Denise, 1 Peter 5, 8. Robert, Revelation 12, 9 through 11. Boy, we better read fast here. 
and stuff in Revelation 13.8. Alright, we're talking about Satan's schemes. Uh, 2 Corinthians 11.3. But I fear lest by any means as the serpent beguileth Eve, beguiled Eve through the uh, subtlety, so your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. So, so your minds would be corrupted from the simplicity that, that is in Christ. Now, the term simplicity there in the King James um, means uh, doesn't mean being simple-minded. Uh, I mean, people have read that and said, well, see, we, we, we don't want to learn a lot of doctrine because that's too complex. But that's not what it means. It's simplicity there in the Greek means purity or being unsullied, unsullied, unsullied or unmixed with something that's uh, not supposed to be there. Not, not an alloy. So, uh, Satan would try to corrupt us from the purity of the gospel. Okay, then, uh, 2 Corinthians 11, 14. And, and no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. And that's what deceives us, right? Those two Mormon missionaries that they wrote up in the paper looked so nice. And they were so dedicated and so wholesome and so wonderful. But they were selling poison for the soul. They are destroying people's souls by teaching another Jesus and a blasphemous, wicked doctrine that nobody should believe. That, that God Himself was a man who became a God, so they deny the doctrine of God. And that, and that we can become gods and that we can go to other planets, the male, males among us, not, not women, and, and populate a planet of little gods. There you, there you go. Now, it may look nice, but it's poison. Uh, uh, Mark has something, and then we'll go back to this first. Occasionally, one. When, when we're street preaching in downtown Minneapolis or at the U of M, the Mormons will come up on their bicycles, and they'll park, and they'll stand there, and they'll smile, and they'll nod their head. And make everybody around them think that they're part of us. And uh, so they always want to identify themselves with the church. Yes, they claim to be Christian. Yeah. And they'll agree with you. Oh, and yeah, it, we believe everything. Even in that do. article yesterday, uh, Joseph Smith uh, brought about life in the dead church. Oh, he, he said did. that. And so we always differentiate ourselves. We always point um, some of their doctrines out. It's by grace that you're saved and through faith, not of works. And we always uh, then talk about Christ and how we will even bring up that the Mormons have a false Christ. Yeah, then and, they uh, don't and then they'll hop okay. on their bikes and they'll. Take <laughs> <off>. <laughs> Mark, Mark has a ministry doing street preaching. That's that's what he's referring to. <laughs> yeah. The, so when you say the Mormons have a false Christ, they're on their bikes and boom. <laughs> good, good. Okay, Luke twenty-two thirty. No, Zechariah three one through four. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed in filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you. With pure vestments. So Satan there was accusing the high priest. And um, what it was it? It said, the Lord rebuke you, right? Did you notice that? 
the Lord rebuke you. Isn't that the same thing it says in Jude? When it says uh, Michael uh, didn't bring railing accusations. But... Wow, I keep stepping on this. I'm going to have to go wireless up here too. Don't hear. Okay. Um, I've used that uh, when talking about this false spiritual warfare because they're all running around rebuking Satan. Well, it doesn't do any good. Satan doesn't care if you yell at him. You know, his ears don't get sore. And uh, the, the, the solution to the problem that they were having with Satan there in Zechariah was that the Lord removes the filthy garments and gives us a new one, and that's the righteousness of Christ. Okay? And so then I think that's one of our passages here. Oh, man, we're about out of time. Let me, who has, uh, Robert, did you have Revelation 12? Yeah, could, I'll have you, let's jump ahead to that one because it's, it's basically a parallel passage in my mind to Zechariah 3, 1 through 4. Okay? Revelation 12, 9 through 11. And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down who accuses them before our God day and night. And they overcame him because of the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of their testimony, and they did not love their life even to death. There you go. Now notice in the Zechariah passage, the, the victory over Satan was the removal of the filthy garments and the putting on the clean ones, which God does. Here, they overcome by the blood of the Lamb. And what does the blood of the Lamb do? It washes away our guilt. And though our sins are as scarlet, we should become white as snow. And so the way Satan is overcome is by the blood atonement and what Jesus did for it. And then it says they, it says they, they overcame by the blood of the Lamb, the word of their testimony. Now later in Revelation, it says um, the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy, right? So their testimony isn't that I defeated Satan. The testimony is Jesus forgave me. And so Satan is accusing the brethren. He's saying you're a wicked sinner and you don't deserve to be part of God's kingdom. And our answer is, yes, that's right, but the blood of Jesus has washed away my sins. And I am not trusting myself. They love not their lives unto death. I'm not trusting me. I'm not trusting my own righteousness, but that righteousness that Christ gives. So, good parallel passage. Um, let's quick do one more. Julie, could you read the one in Luke 22:31, And then... We're out of time here. Simon, Simon, listen. Satan has asked excessively that you be given up to him, that he might sift you like grain. Okay, so Jesus said, Simon, uh, uh, Satan's asking permission to sift you like grain. Read the next verse, Julie. But I have prayed especially for you, Peter, that your own faith may not fail. And when you yourself have turned again, strengthen and establish your brethren. Okay, so the implication was Satan got permission. Right? Yeah. So Satan asked for permission to sift Peter. And like I've always said, man, if I was Peter, I'd say, well, you didn't say yes, did you? (laughs) (laughs) Don't give him permission. But, but what Jesus did was pray that his faith would not fail. And then when you're turned, 
strengthen your brethren. And I believe, I don't know how you understand that passage, but isn't that about what happened uh, when he was uh, denied Christ? Do you think that was what the sifting was? Because he said, you know, though they all deny you, I won't. And then later he was sifted like wheat and, and he failed Christ. But then when he was turned, he, he strengthened his brother and he preached the first sermon on, on Pentecost. So Peter's uh, overcoming of Satan wasn't, it came when Peter quit trusting Peter after he failed and he had to trust Jesus instead of Peter. Yeah. Isn't that comforting though that Jesus himself was the one praying that Peter would have that faith? Amen. Absolutely. And, and see, I think at the time, Peter's problem, as we read the Gospels, was he was bold in himself. Because he was the one that later said, well, they'll all deny you, but I won't. And then he did. And so the real victory over Satan is, is like we see in Zechariah, like we see in Revelation and in Luke, the victory over Satan is when we quit trusting ourselves. And we believe that the only hope we have is the righteousness of Christ that's given to us as a gift through the blood atonement and not our own ability to fight Satan. Satan isn't scared of any of us, but he can't do anything about the blood of Jesus because that pays the penalty. So, uh, to, to this morning, I'm going to finish, we're going to finish 2 Thessalonians in the sermon and we'll be done with 2 Thessalonians. So, um, help pick up the chairs and we'll see you upstairs in a half hour.